Hello and welcome to Why It Matters. This is a podcast for leaders who know that relevance is a moving target. I'm Michael Goff and I'm the Strategy Director at Spark Studio. This is a collection of interviews with leaders who are passionate about something that is being overlooked. Sometimes that will be a brand, a product or a service, but it can also be an idea, something that has lost its value for many. And to re-express relevance, you need someone with vision. You can't just borrow Innocent's voice or Oatly's and think that everyone's going to love you. Because it's theirs, it's not yours. But you can find your voice. Um, And if you do that, it's very powerful. According to research published by the American Association of the Advancement of Science, each of us will use an average of 16,000 words a day. And we know that to run a successful business requires good communication. It might seem obvious, but central to that communication is the importance of words and how we use them. But because communication is second nature to us, we perhaps take our words for granted. I wanted to speak with Neil because he believes passionately in the value of words, in what we say and how we say it. Creative writing is something many of us will associate with the arts. Good books and scripts written to communicate ideas that reflect our shared humanity. But to help us become more clear, Neil is convinced of the need to bring more creativity to our everyday writing. Enjoy the discussion on why creative writing in business matters. I'm delighted to welcome to this episode, Neil Baker. Neil, welcome to Why It Matters. Hello, Michael. (laughs) It's a real joy to be here. I mean that sincerely. Give me some context. Where are you at the moment? What's your current location? Uh, So I'm sitting on a chair at my desk in my, uh, my writing shed which sometimes I call my studio. Sometimes it even gets called the atelier, um, <laughs> depending on how pretentious I feel like being. But I think, no, my writing shed, and that's at the end of my garden, in the town of Tenterden, which is in the county of Kent in England. That's where I am right now, physically at least. Fantastic. And you're the uh, managing director of a wonderful organisation called Dark Angels. Could you give me a little bit of background to... To what Dark Angels is, its purpose, its history, and your involvement with it? I can, yes. I can try to anyway. And um, it's easiest, I think, to start with like my my story, if that's not, again, too pretentious. So my, my work, what I do is it's all about helping people to tell their stories, uh, share their ideas, and make connections. Pretty simple, really. And I've been doing that for... 20, 30 years. And um, it's something that I've always been trying to get better at. And about 10, 15 years ago, I heard a BBC Radio 4 programme about these people called Dark Angels, who, who had this strange and interesting new approach to writing for business. And um, I thought, wow, that sounds really weird. Um, but also, I'd really like to do that. That sounds so, so me. So I tracked them down, looked at what they did and thought, oh, no, that does sound a bit strange. So I, I put it off and I put it off and had a young family at the time. But eventually I signed up to do it. And it was just kind of life changing. I went to the the wilds of Scotland for five days and, and um, did this thing called Dark Angels, which I'll try to explain a bit in a moment. But uh, I love that course. I did another course. That was great too. I did another course. And then they said to me, would you like to come and teach these courses too? So I thought, yeah, great. And then after a bit, they said, would you like to run the company for us? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, this is some kind of pyramid scheme. you know. Yeah. 
But I ended up running them. So what we do is um, we work with organizations and people around the world and we do what we call creative writing for business. So the idea is that if you want to become a better writer at work, if you want to use language better at work, if you just want to understand the power, the transformative power of language uh, in, in business or in life, really, the way to really understand that is to just play with those other forms of writing, you know, the kind of writing that people pay to read rather than <laughs> marketing stuff. So we play with, we get people writing poems, stories, really kind of enjoying language. And the idea is that if you connect with that love of language, then whatever you write, whether it's a Instagram post or a, an email campaign or a brand strategy, a report to your board, is going to be better because it's going to be written by somebody who loves language. And where did your love of words come from? I was thinking about this yes, only yesterday, actually, and um, I, could, I, was, I remembered as a child <laughs> sitting down with probably my mum, maybe my dad, reading you know, these really basic reading books that you get at school, learn to read, you know, Peter and John or whatever. And I was, I was chugging along okay, feeling, oh, I can read, this is quite interesting, and then came across this word that I looked at and thought, what is that? I don't recognise that. And it had this kind of O-U-G-H sound. And I thought, well, I don't know what to do with that. What is that? And then I realised it was a word, I think the word was trough, something like that, or through, probably through. And I thought, I kind of worked it out. And I do remember physically the moment when that penny dropped and I thought, that's that means through. And I thought, wow, isn't language amazing? And And from there, I like to think I was good at, quite a few things at school as long as they didn't involve a leather ball and and mud (laughs) or any kind of physical activity but it was really in English and just anything involving language I just I just loved it and it just opened whole worlds to me and how did that sort of sort of initial opening and interest in words sort of grow into a concern about the way businesses use words. What was the sort of the tipping point from sort of just a general interest into words into actually here's there's an opportunity here for things to be done? So that love of words um, got me into my first job, which was working as a journalist and uh, working on a small business magazine for new accountants, which was very imaginatively called New Accountant. So I, I worked there and, and kind of learned my craft, if you like, by working with a very challenging editor who would probably be immediately up in front of an employment tribunal. <laughs> but um, so anyway, spending a lot of time interviewing, you know, pretty significant business leaders, considering I was probably 21 and knew nothing at the time, interviewing CEOs and, and just being baffled by the words that came out of their mouth. You say to them, like, what is it? What do you do? And they couldn't answer. Or you'd read, you'd, you'd be interviewing them about something and you'd ask a question and they'd give you an answer and you'd just think, I don't understand what you're saying. And then the interview would end and you'd turn off your dictaphone. And then suddenly they'd become normal people again. And you, you could talk to them. And I thought, what happened? What happened? Mm. What, what was this strange performance that you were involved in a minute ago? And it used to be the case very often, actually, that the most interesting insights you would get would be between the room in which the interview was held and the lift, because the interview would end and the person would walk you to the lift. 
and on the way to the lift, you could actually talk about things normally, like normal people. So I just became really curious about what what happens to people when you put them in a business context that makes it really difficult for them to speak normally. Getting to the heart of that has become my life's work, Michael. <laughs> And what what does happen? Why why do why is there this sort of vernacular that we we rely on in a business context that doesn't work outside of that context? Why it doesn't work in that context? I suppose you would also argue there are so many reasons behind that. I think one though, which I can share, is that you know to to uh, to succeed in in the sort of corporate organisational business world, you know people generally tend to be kind of well educated. And uh, you get on in education by telling, showing people what you know. In order to get a good grade, I need to show you that I understand this. The fact that you who are marking this know all this stuff already and I'm telling you nothing new doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's all about me showing you how much I know. And when you move into other parts of life, which are actually about connecting with an audience, you have to be able to let go of that and think, it's not about me telling you what I know. It's about me sharing with you what I feel you need from me. And it's completely different. But it's it's a very difficult shift to perform sometimes because it then becomes embedded in the culture of where you are. So you end up in a culture where it's all about everybody telling everybody what they know. And you can imagine in a room where everyone's, if that's everybody's agenda, then you end up in a room with lots of people shouting at each other and talking each other down, not really listening to each other. And if you are not a good listener and you don't really care about what your audience need to know from you, you're not going to be a very good writer. And I guess as well, there's, as part of that, um, I've been reading your anniversary reprint of We, Me, Them and It mm. by uh, John Simmons, who's one of the founders of of dark angels and he talks about the importance of thinking about the deliberacy of words we use and the fact that there's often words that we just have accepted because they're part of the industry or the context in which we operate and the example that he uses is we talk about stakeholders but we wouldn't talk about stakeholders in any other context than a kind of business context and rather we should be talking about audiences and so i guess another part of the challenge is that we inherit a kind of a language a vocab that is just just assumed to be everyone understands what it means and so we kind of take it on and present it because we're all in the room together we all know what we mean but there's n- there's never been any kind of critical challenge to those words no exactly no and i think you know when you're riding on the train and you you see words like please alight here i mean when did you ever last alight from anything i mean <laughs> Who, who even uses that word apart from the person that wrote that sign? But the person who wrote that sign was probably some expert in how to get off a train. So nobody challenged it. But it's just, it's ridiculous. Ridiculous jargon. But then on the other hand, and I, I feel that it's easy to criticise language and saying, oh, that's jargon. I don't understand it. Therefore, it's jargon. That's a slippery slope. So you can imagine, I don't know, if you're a doctor and you said to somebody quickly pass me the rubbery tube with the listening things on the end that I'm going and they say what just do you mean stethoscope (laughs) and you say yes pass me the stethoscope and they would think well I understand that word if you're choosing not to use that word with me that's kind of insulting because you're saying that I wouldn't understand so this kind of there's a difference between sort of jargon which is a light and idiomatic speech which is technical language where if I understand what a word means, and you do too. 
then let's use that word. It's very easy just to think, well, these words, these words are okay. I've heard them. I'll use these words. I can cut and paste this in here because it's been signed off by compliance, so that's fine. And you're put, trying to use communication as though you're trying to build some kind of jigsaw puzzle. Um, but you think, well, these pieces are from another box. They don't form the picture on your box. I mean, we get there to sort of chat about the DNA of Dark Angels, you know, creative writing for business, because that's that's looking to overcome that and to kind of get to the heart of the, why does creative writing for business matter? I think that you can say to people, it's really important that you connect with your audience and that matters. And it's very easy for someone to agree with that statement and really not understand it and just ignore it. If you have actually written something that matters to you personally, like a little poem or, or a piece of memoir. And if you read that to a group of friendly, supportive people who are going to celebrate and enjoy whatever you say, because that's the culture that we create. So you share that, that those words that matter to you and you see how it actually connects with those people and you feel in your heart what it feels like to make that connection, then you don't go back to writing the way you used to. Because mm. that idea that you need to connect with your audience changes from being kind of an, an intellectual idea that, that, yes, I should try to apply that, to something that you've really felt and experienced for yourself. Um, when you feel the power of that, you know, I can remember the first time it happened to me, when you feel the power of it, you, you can't go back. You can only go forwards. And you go forwards to fabulous things. And how does that work in a context of a brand i can see it a personal level when you're kind of ex expressing your own personal views or bit of history i think you know john simmons talks about the importance of being able to using your autobiography as a starting point to kind of get the the ball rolling but taking that into a brand context i guess typically you'd think of you know in the last sort of 20 years the humanity that a brand like innocent smoothies brought to the market and then now more recently, the way that Oatly talks in a very sort of approachable down to earth. But I think you're you're saying there's more nuance in what you're saying. You're not just talking about sort of cheeky, chappy, friendly human banter. There's something more going on. Is that right? Yeah. And I think that those examples you just share are examples of brands communicating with language in a way that works brilliantly for their brand. And, you know, when, when innocent amazed the world with their tone of voice then you get the absurd spectacle of banks trying to do that as well yeah. and my son lost his mobile phone recently so i um, sent an email to vodafone to say we've lost the phone what do we do and they replied with a beautifully written very empathetic email that made it feel as though someone very close to me had died we are so sorry for your loss we appreciate how what a difficult time this is for you we want to do everything we can to make it right that's that's lovely and beautiful but i'm thinking oh come on i've just lost my phone i mean nobody nobody's died so it's all about getting that that tone right and in the world of creative writing we do talk a lot about finding your voice you know mm. and how you know when you've found your voice sometimes how it can be useful for you to write in a different voice to see what that feels like but the issue of voice in the creative world is really it means a lot and it means a lot in the in the in the brand world too in that 
it's not just you can't just borrow Innocent's voice or Oatley's and think that everyone's going to love you because it's theirs. It's not yours, but you can find your voice. Um, and if you do that, it's very powerful, not just in terms of communicating with um, your, your customers or your audience, but also in terms of saying something really powerful to the people who work with you mm. or who might come and work with you about what, what your values are, who you are, what your personality is, what you'd be like to work for. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's finding a voice that aligns with who, who you are, your own voice. And finding a voice that obviously is more than perhaps the kind of founder's voice, but actually is representative of an organisation within the context of a market or when there's more decision makers uh, involved in a business, how do you settle on the right voice for the business? You don't start by trying to find the voice. So the voice is a consequence of something deeper. So when I write for myself, for example, the voice that emerges is a function of what I'm interested in, what I believe, and also my values in the world. And organisations have those things too. They have points of view about stuff and they have their values. And I think that the key, first of all, is to explore what are our values here and try as hard as possible to really dig into that and understand, you know, what what are our real values? Not like, we're friendly. Well, that's, you know, that's nice. But is there some nuance? Where's the nuance around that? And then really all you're then doing is telling stories and using words in ways that reflect and are consistent with those values, which is why I have a bit of an issue with very complex tone of voice guidelines because they're not really very helpful. So, yeah, it's finding those values. And often those values are you discover them by listening to the organisation and listening to the stories that people tell about where they are, where they work, how they serve clients, why they do what they do why the business was founded in the first place. You're telling me this story because it says something about who you are. There's some value here in this story. How do we how do we get to the essence of that? I'm kind of mindful of of the challenge sometimes to brands to, 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 to be simple and to speak in a way that is simple. But the fear is at that point that, you know, in another context, you're dumbing down. You're kind of, you're speaking to the lowest common denominator. How does simplicity help in... Uh, for a business talking about itself, talking to its audience and trying to connect to its audience? I think the key in your language is uh, maybe simplicity is a word that needs to be unpacked a little bit. I prefer to speak in terms of communication that's clear, concise and compelling. Okay, Mm. so But there's always a proviso with that, which is as clear as you can make it as concise as it can be, compelling for the context and the message. So by that I mean, you know, you can't really fetishize simplicity. So some things can be simplified, or everything can be simplified, but only so far. Mm. Um, If you oversimplify, that's obviously a bad thing. It becomes dumbing down. So it's really careful to be aware of what your message is, who you're talking to, what they need from you. So you get it as, as simple as it can be, but not not oversimplified. 
But I was reflecting on, um, I was reading an article with the CMO of uh, Investco, investment, the massive kind of uh, investment management uh, business. And um, he comes from an advertising background. And uh, he was reflecting on the facts on the industry, the investment industry in particular is usually incredibly verbose. It, it hides behind lots of, lots of technical language, lots of um, financial descriptions of things. And he was reflecting on a conversation that he, He'd had the opportunity to meet Brian Cox, the mm. the TV physicist, um, and he was really struck by the way Brian spoke to him. He wasn't dumbing down, but you could tell that he was speaking in a way that he wanted to convey in simple terms something about, I think it was a lecture that he'd been to or some aspect of the talk that, 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 that the CMO had heard. Um but it wasn't. It wasn't being doing. It wasn't doing it in a simplistic way. He wasn't speaking in a way that was sort of talking down to him. Uh, and that there's a massive. I think you know. In, in, in you're saying there, there's a massive opportunity for uh, in that sort of balance between sort of jargon and communication. That there's a confidence to be able to speak more simply, whilst recognizing that actually there are some things that we can't simplify, but we can try and communicate them in a way that actually connects to the audience. I think, yeah, but I think you're right. Perhaps we could simplify what you've just said. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let's try simplify that, that. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the case that I think organisations that I I work with, it's often the case that the higher up, and it's terrible to think of these things hierarchically and in terms of pyramids, but lots of organisations are like that, that the higher up you go, the more people value simplicity mm. um but it's sort of like a what would the shape it's not a pyramid actually because when when people arrive in an organization they th- they say things like what is it we do why are we doing this how does this work and they say that at the top as well why are we doing this how does that work Can, you know? but it's in the middle where it's like i can't i can't ask why we do this i run it and I need to know. I have to pretend I know why we do this. Is it important? I can't ask if it's important because it's my it's my job to make it important. So you get this whole middle layer of confusion where speaking simply is can seem like a terribly reckless thing to do. So, but I do think you know, clear writing comes from clear thinking. So someone like Brian Cox, enormous brain, he can think clearly, so he can write and speak clearly. And I think. Yeah, those two go so hand in hand together. So when you have a situation where I don't really know what my brand stands for, I, d- I don't really know what this organisation does, I don't really know why anyone would invest in this, I haven't, I haven't really thought that through, I don't know the answer to that, then you're never going to be able to speak about it clearly because yeah. confused thought produces confused language. It called to mind um, for me uh, a quote which I think you introduced me to from Oppenheimer from his academic uh, piece which is beautifully titled Consequences of Erudite Vernacular Utilised Irrespective of Necessity subtitle Problems with Using Long Words Needlessly which is fantastic I think as a a summary but he says one thing seems certain write as simply and plainly as possible and it's more likely you'll be thought of as intelligent that actually there's a real, to be clear and to be concise conveys a real confidence and a real intelligence about the subject matter. Who's doing it well? Who's using words well, do you think? 
What are the examples that you, you see out in the big wide world that you think actually they've got a good grasp on how they use creative writing? So in consumer brands, there are lots, you know, so you, you mentioned Oatly. I love Oatly. I even think, because oat milk is, um, oat drink, I've noticed it's called now, not oat milk, but it's become, it's quite a new thing for me, but I do, I do buy it when I'm in the supermarket. I look at the Oatly on the shelf and there's another brand, I won't mention them, but I do think, I think that other one does actually taste nicer, but I want to buy Oatly. I just, I want to give them my vote of support, you know. So when the first time I did deliberately put the Oatly in my trolley over the other brand, which I'm sure is better product, I did think, wow, yeah, this stuff does make a difference. Branding does work, you know. I just feel like I've got some kind of relationship with Oatly. They make me laugh. And I think if people make you laugh, then that's the great basis for a relationship. I particularly love a real favourite of mine is uh, Kabuto noodles. Okay. Which uh, in fact I had one of one of their products yesterday for lunch, and as I'm making it, I thought essentially this is a rebranded pot noodle. I was going to ask, is it just a high class pot noodle? And I don't know whether it is qualitatively different in terms of nutritional value, but I'm willing to believe it is because I just love their brand. One thing I particularly love about it is that they are aware that in order for you to eat their noodles, there's a window of about three minutes between the kettle boiling, you pouring the water in the pot, and then you, you just got to kind of stand there. And th- three minutes is a curious amount of time because it's not really long enough to go and do something else. So you just kind of stand there. And they've obviously thought, ah, this is an opportunity for us to form a relationship with our consumer. So let, let's, you know, what could we do? Let's just put some interesting, let's take the process, the necessary process of describing to you how to turn these desiccated noodles into something that you can eat and enjoy. We need to tell the customer how to do that. But how can we bring some joy to that and some some fun and humour? But it's quite enlightened humour. I mean, and they've got a very distinctive approach to their their, their words. How can we use this this kind of dead time, this redundant moment in this customer's day, as an opportunity to build a relationship with them? And they do that brilliantly. So I, I love it. In the B two B world, it's much harder to find good examples. And one one exercise we do on Dark Angels is we say to people, you know, bring in some examples of uh, brand writing that you love and brand writing that you hate. And in one workshop, actually, someone said to me, "Hey, you know, hate." Hate's strong, isn't it? <laughs> Shouldn't we say brand writing that you love and brand writing that's got opportunities for development or room for improvement? We can't really call it bad. And I thought, you know what? No, it's bad. I mean, I, I have a physical reaction to words and I really feel it. Bad words spoil my day. They, they're like a poison, a toxic. They just don't need to be there. They cause harm in so many ways beyond branding, but language can cause significant harm to the world. Now, I think we should, you know, name name the bad stuff, call it out. But one I like, I do love Ticket Tailor. So they're like an Eventbrite competitor. And I just love the way that the process of creating an event is something that, because they're an online sort of ticketing platform that if you were running a workshop, for example, you could sell tickets to it on on uh, ticket tailor the way they describe the process the language they use it's just really sort of friendly and it just makes it really easy 
And um, I thought, it's interesting that I'm having this experience of it being easy and friendly. And I thought, I wonder what, who are these people? What is their purpose? So I did dig around on their website and I found that their their purpose is to be, I've got the quote here, it says, they want to be the best loved event ticketing platform in the world. And I thought the key word in that sentence is not best, it is loved. They, they want to bring some love. And you can really feel that in the way they use words. I thought, yeah. I don't really think that people buy products because they love the words. Similarly, I know the visuals are more your thing, aren't they? And people don't people don't buy product because I, do, I love the colour of that logo, <laughs> you know. And I know when you said to me, when we've worked on projects, here are some great logos, what do you think? And I just think, they're just all great, Michael. <laughs> just you do this really well i can't i don't have the i don't have the refined palette to tell them apart but what i think we all do detect really is is kind of the the feeling this product is giving me this product or service the feeling i get from it the experience it brings into my life that's what i love and then if you reflect how is that happening it's through the words you use it's through the, the visuals that you use. It's also about the product itself. I mean, you, you can't, I don't think you'd get very far flogging a dreadful pot noodle just because it amuses you while you're making it. I do actually enjoy Kabuto uh, noodles, but I don't, I, I wouldn't have bought them if the language hadn't filled. Yeah. In the B2B space, why is it that it's, it seems to be poorer in its use of words compared to B2C, do you think? Well, I, I think that one of the joys about getting older is that there are all these uh, fundamentally held notions in the world of business that you can just say, really? I don't think so. So I'm always a bit sceptical about the difference between B2B, B2C. I just think that we're people trying to communicate with other people. Mm. and sometimes those people are buying things that they will use and consume themselves, and sometimes those people are buying things that their organisation will use and consume. But really, what we're trying to engage is people. But I think that in the B2B space, that just gets forgotten. We focus so much on the logical reasons for why my product is better than somebody else's and therefore all I need to do is make my potential customer aware of these differences without really trying to engage them emotionally so the language just just kind of is an afterthought and also in that kind of business to business space it's often so hard takes so long to work out what we're actually trying to say to these customers that how we say it is like if you don't like the way we're saying it, it's too late because it's taken us months and months and months to work out what the idea is, which is why often, you know, you see these B2B advertising campaigns where somebody's kind of, you know, you've got a strap line that's basically your strategy in three words. <laughs> Are you trying to get me to buy your product or buy your brand strategy? Yeah. And so I think it's just that the fundamental human to human nature of it is easily forgotten. I wonder too, to what extent, certainly in the kind of service industry, which is, you know, for sort of smaller businesses that have largely built their business around word of mouth referrals. Mm. And in the service industry, there's a real 
prominence and importance on the experience that the the client has with the company that that becomes the kind of default position of what makes us different what makes us different is the way that we put our customers first or the way we put our clients first and our professionalism and our our approachability it's kind of rooted in their traditional kind of marketing and sales strategy of a referral without actually getting beyond what could be said of any business in that sector you know nobody in that sector would say that they were unprofessional or unfriendly or not putting their customers first there's almost there needs to be more groundwork done to actually understand Mm. what what are those things and what drives them and what what are the benefits of those things exactly you reference there that test that we often apply isn't it where if you say this is your your value okay could anybody plausibly believe the opposite so we want to position ourselves as friendly why is that going to differentiate you from the competitor who is unfriendly and but that i mean that comes up all the time as doing a brand workshop a couple of weeks ago and and you know said to the group you know fundamentally why do people work with you and they said well you know really i think it's i think we're just really nice people <laughs> and, and, well i'm sure you are you know i'm sure you are but what is it about you that makes you nice you know well we get lovely we get lovely feedback well what is, what is it what is that feedback what is it that people actually say about you so it's always you know just just digging a bit further going a bit deeper than the easy to accept but wrong answer you talk about the a kind of a problem with tone of voice guidelines being hugely kind of complex and overcomplicated. do tone of voice guidelines have any value for for a brand in a in a kind of marketing team what are your thoughts on approach to tone of voice there's a school of thought which i lean towards very often which is that if you're a good writer and you know what you're doing they're not very helpful and why? Why is that? Often because they include lots of just general guidance about how to use a semicolon or let's try and write in the active voice, not the passive, which really, if you're selling yourself as a professional writer, you, sh- you should know that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so they, they tend to contain, you know, very broad, broad guidance about how to write well, or they include examples that are either not very helpful or no examples at all. You know, they say, like, we want to be... F- you know, we want to be friendly. Well, can you have an example of what's what's a friendly way of saying, you know, whatever it is you say? I think fundamentally, though, the thing that they lack is that they think that tone of voice is all about how you say things. But a huge part of it is what is it you're actually trying to say? So you can give a writer a brilliant tone of voice guide and a rubbish brief about what you're trying to say and they're not going to be able to write effectively or on tone because they don't really know what they're doing because they don't have the clarity around what they're actually trying to convey with words and so for a head of brand looking to kind of strengthen their their organization's use of words i mean that's a good place to start you know being clear on what it is they're trying to say what other things should be considered to strengthen the way brands use words? Well, you know, the obvious thing is to send everybody on a dark angel's course. <laughs> of course. Uh, or, or bring us in. We do bespoke workshops. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> clarity around what you're trying to say. Simple clarity. So if I say, what is it we're trying to say here? Don't give me a 142 slide deck that covers everything we're trying to say. What's the real essence of it? Why does it matter? I would rather put 70, 80% of my time, if I'm allowed to invent a random number, on 
working out what is it we're actually trying to say here and the rest on execution. So don't underestimate the value of that, trying to find that clarity. That's one thing. Also, be aware that as you then try and bring that message to life, you you, br- you literally bring life to the message. So it starts to change and evolve. And you think, actually, no, oh, maybe it's more this. Maybe we should be saying this. So don't don't try to control overly control the language so don't don't over brief don't over inform don't try to keep a tight grip on things allow the writers that you use or the people that you uh, whether they're professional writers that you're bringing in or whether it's your own writing allow the process of the writing to to form the writing allow the big thing we say at dark angels is you know, you've got to bring yourself to the writing mm. you've got to trust yourself or if you're managers trust the people who are doing the writing to to make it their own, to bring themselves to it as well. And again, often that can sound like, what? What is he talking about? How do I bring myself to this? But if you've had that experience of finding a way of writing about our corporate strategy for the next quarter in a way where you think, you know what? No, I'm finding there's some energy in this for me. I can feel that this arrangement of words I'm using, it, it's exciting me. Not Not in the same way that writing that poem on that workshop was really exciting but I've activated that muscle I can I know I can feel a connection with this and I can feel now that I'm bringing myself to this work as well and that always shows so one thing that we say is um quote from the U.S. poet Robert Frost no tears in the writer no tears in the reader and what we don't mean is that if you're not crying about this brand strategy paper what we mean is that if you don't care about what you're writing your audience will not care either you know, it's empowering yourself or your people to find in the writing their own connection. Why does this matter to you? you know? And very practically, if you're trying to write something and you're thinking, I don't know why this matters, well, maybe stop and go for a walk and reflect on it or talk to a colleague. I'm trying to write this email to these people. You know, why does it, I, I'm not really connecting with it. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Have a conversation. They might say, well, it, it matters because you know, X, Y, Z. Uh, Dark Angels has an anniversary, I believe. You're now 21 years old. We have, yes, thank you. <laughs> yes, we are. And I've, I've referenced it earlier in our discussion, but you've reprinted a bit of a classic tome from your founder. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about We, Me, Them and It? I can, yes. So We, Me, Them and It is a fabulous book written by one of our founders, John Simmons, who I don't think I've ever heard him claim this, but people say it about him and it's true. (laughs) He's the guy who sort of invented verbal identity and tone of voice when he was um, working with the agency Newell and Sorrell, and then he moved on to Interbrand. So he published this book called We, Me, Them and It, which is really, it's the founding text of the Dark Angels philosophy, really. And it's just been republished in in its 21st anniversary edition. And um, I I, uh, wrote a sort of review, a piece about it. And uh, I thought, you know, it's been a while. I'm going to reread it because the way that organisations use language or the challenges they face must have changed fundamentally in the last 21 years, particularly over the last few years where, you know, the way that people, brands, organisations and us as individuals use language has become so politicised such a minefield, very rightly, because people have become much more aware of the power of language and the power of language to do harm, often harm that 
was invisible. People didn't know that they were talking about other people in ways that they found offensive or or damaging, limiting to their lives. So that awareness of the power of language as a, a sort of dangerous thing has also created some fear in people about the joy of using language. So anyway, I thought that looking back at the book, is it still relevant? And I was delighted. <laughs> and I'm delighted to tell you that it's all in there. You know, it all, it all goes back to the fundamental principles of treating language with respect, treating people with respect, treating each other like humans, and just seeing that language is a beautiful tool for us to connect with each other. Mm. And it's that connection. If you connect with other people, amazing things can happen. And, and language is a phenomenally innovative technology for us to do that. Why not use it? You know, why not make the fullest use of it? You look at the way that organizations invest millions of dollars in data analytics, artificial intelligence. Here's a, here's a technology, language. And to implement it, all you need is a pencil, you know. So it's a great book, and it, it talks about the tensions between them, if we start there. So we, me, them, and it. I usually start with them. So them are the people that we're trying to communicate with, the audience that we've talked about. How do we really understand them? What is it they want? What do they need? How do we empathize with them? The it is, what is it we're actually trying to say to them? And what's the sort of the... Uh, the message, but also what's the the medium we're using, you know. If the sad message that we need to communicate to them is that they are all being made redundant, maybe we don't do that in a text message or on a Zoom call. Mm. Maybe there's a more, a kinder connection between it and them. The we is the voice of the organisation, our tone of voice, but it's also how we do things around here, how our values, good and bad, so our inspiring ideas about what we want to do in the world, but also our maybe limiting assumptions around what's possible for us, how we do things, that kind of old solidified language and process that you mentioned earlier, that stuff that, well, we, this is just how we do it. And then the key magical ingredient is me, not necessarily me personally. My ego is not that big, but me as in the person writing the thing, the person writing the it, which will go to them. My role in all of this, if, for example, I'm looking at the message that we are trying to send to the audience and I'm feeling, you know what, as me, as a human, I feel that's wrong. I, don't, I think we could do it better than that. Am I brave enough to challenge how things are done around here? Do I understand words and language well enough that I can articulate the problem that I'm seeing here? Can I become an advocate for a better, more effective use of language for this brand? You know, do I have that within me? And my argument would be, you do, yes. Mm-hmm. And you need to become confident using that power. So it's the me that's that's missing. And so the, the book really is about, for me anyway, is bringing yourself to the equation, bringing your full self to work and saying, you know, if we are trying to say this to those people, how I feel about that matters and it's going to work better. It's going to be more effective. We're going to achieve our goals if I feel empowered to bring myself to this. Great. And uh, where can people find the book? Amazon, I guess, or all good, you should say all good bookshops these days, all good bookshops. Um, and to be honest, if they don't stock it, they're not a good bookshop. Find another bookshop. <laughs> um, you can buy it direct from the publisher who are the wonderful business called Lid. Super simple, I like that, L-I-D. Uh, or you can buy it from, from Amazon. 
Finally, we have this little section sort of worth a look where we try and end the podcast with some recommendations from our guests. What have you watched, read or listened to recently that you think our listeners should take a look at? I've discovered this great new box set called Breaking Bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seriously, I watched the first two seasons of Breaking Bad. I said to my son, who's 19, they've done an amazing job of like recreating this, this kind of period feel. It's so like... Uh, 2000s you know and uh, it must have cost a fortune and he said dad that's when it was made <laughs> so I'm not I'm not if you're looking for the hot take on what's what's new uh, in terms of the cultural space I'm probably not a good source on that but tell us about William Stafford yeah well I will do so my well my cultural my top cultural tips I'll give you two okay one is read poetry that's it. That is your soundbite, Michael. Yeah, okay. Nothing I said earlier. Just read poems, you know, and, and I think that, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I, don't, I don't read poems, I don't like poems. And I think that's like saying, I don't like music, which unless you're in the Taliban, um, you know, no, you know, respect all differences and that. But if people say, I don't like music, it, it's more like, well, maybe you've not found the music you like because there's lots of kinds of music. And I think not liking poetry is a bit like saying, when I was at school, we listened to a lot of Schubert and Brahms. And so I decided, I don't like music. And you say, well, have you heard of rap, country, folk, jazz, blues? No, I've never heard of any of that. What's that? You say, well, that's music too. And so I think, I'm kind of labouring the point, but... Poetry is such a beautiful thing, but it can be daunting to find your way into it. So read poetry is my top tip. Start anywhere, but if you don't know what to read, ask somebody. Ask me. Email me. I will recommend some poetry for you. So that's cultural tip number one. Cultural tip number two is make your own culture. Make something yourself. Share it with people. So the great thing about writing is that you don't really need very much. So my my wonderful wife bought me a box of acrylic paints and, and brushes oh, wow. for, for Christmas. And I thought, wow, this is great. But I thought, I don't know what to do with them. And they look quite expensive. So I want to, you know, I need to know how to use these before I try and do something with them. Whereas everybody knows, I think, how to write some words on a piece of paper. So if you want to give writing a go, you've got everything you need anyway. So just have a go. Write write something and make your own culture. Maybe spend less money on other people's culture. Mm. Uh, Make your own. And, yeah, you mentioned William Stafford, one of my favourite poets, my poetry hero. What do you do when you get stuck? Oh, yes, you will get stuck. The answer is simple. You lower your standards and continue. (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, that applies to so many things in life. We are stuck. Okay, well, let's lower our standards and continue. It doesn't mean we need to abandon our standards or values. It just means for the time being, let's suspend judgment and move forward and see where we get to. And that is, yeah, that is the essence of creativity, isn't it? That is yeah. Keats and his negative capability. Can you, to badly uh, paraphrase the great John Keats, can you accept that you don't really know what you're doing? You don't know why you're doing it. But can you carry on anyway and see where you get to? Mm. And that's the essence of, that's the creative art, really. 
Brilliant. Neil, thank you so much for your time. It's been lovely to have a conversation with you about words. Uh, really appreciate your time with us. Thank you, Michael. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And yeah, thank you for the opportunity to um, share a bit of my passion. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters has been put together by Spark Studio, the brand and design agency based in London. To find out more about us, visit our website at sparks-studio.com. Join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram at hashtag whyitmatterspod or get in touch with me at whyitmatters at sparks-studio.com. Thanks for listening.